Hi, thanks so much for stopping by. My name is Josh. I'm the uh, guiding teacher, pastor of Dharma Punks, New York, and you are all very welcome. I'm glad you stopped by. I'm happy to know that I finally got around to putting the podcast, which has been going strong on Apple, iTunes, and on uh, Podbean for, I don't know how many years, 15 years or so. There's some 715 docs on it or something. But now it's on Spotify as well. Uh, if you would like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, I do everything entirely by donation. For Venmo, Dharma Punks with an XNYC, the PayPal button is on the website, the podcast site. There's also a Patreon. If you look up Dharma Punks NYC on Patreon, you'll find it as well. All the info is on dharmapunksnyc.com. So thanks for that. And tonight, we're going to be covering indecision. I don't know if I've given a talk on indecision before. I've certainly given talks in the past oh, I don't know, 17, 18 years about making big decisions. And so I'm sure I covered a bit of it in the past, but indecision is certainly in the uh, counseling work I do, is certainly a regular feature. And it's certainly a state that causes, understandably, people a great deal of discomfort. So, Indecision or mixed emotions occurs when a choice we face elicits two or more underlying emotional states. And I'll talk about why the emotions or feelings are important in a little while. But when we are stuck, when we can't make a decision, it's generally because it activates two different emotional states. And very often, they're opposite or very different in valence, how you feel. So the same decision can activate, for example, fear and excitement, or uh, it can associate two forms of fear or two different forms of excitement. And very often, those are situations where we will struggle to make choices and I'll talk about why that is. But um, before then, I'd like to note first that we generally have negative views about times we are ambivalent. And this is partially because uh, in life, we don't like ambivalence, indecision, lack of certainty in so many of the important encounters that we have. No one wants their dentist, their doctor, their plumber to be indecisive. You kind of go to a dentist and you want them to tell you why you have a pain in your tooth. You don't want them to say, well, I don't really know. It could be a lot of things. I'm not really sure. We don't want when we have a leak for a plumber to come over and be completely uh, indecisive about what to do. Well, I don't know. I could do so many things I can't decide. That would not make us very happy. So we don't even want, um, most people say they vote for politicians that are very decisive, which I'm not sure is a good idea to say the least, but there you go. We don't like indecision from others. We don't like it from lawyers. We don't like it from work colleagues. We find that those who express ambivalence sometimes are seen as having a weak character. And often their views might even be disregarded. And there's a lot of clinical studies I've sort of poured through that show just how negative the implications and a kind of... Uh, this society we live in, how ambivalence, lack of having clear, decisive choices 
can be viewed uh, as a way of seeding distrust in people. When we're unable to choose, we can frustrate other people, friends, co-workers, family members, if, for instance, we don't know if we're going to come and visit or do something with them on a given weekend. Um, and it also can cause insomnia while we struggle to decide. Indeso indecision is associated with intrusive ideations, people not being able to put aside a uh, contemplations, and also it's associated with cognitive distortions. Um, it's associated with anxiety, a sense that life is out of our control. We feel that we don't have agency when we can't make a clear choice. It, in other words, it can feel very uncomfortable. And as I noted, indecision is associated with cognitive distortions, uh, the illusion that choices have clear-cut, good, bad, right, or wrong uh, nature to them, when in fact most of the choices we make in life don't have clear, good, or bad outcomes. They're just different outcomes. But this distortion, this sense that there's always a right and a wrong, which comes from black and white thinking, can lead to enormous indecisions in life. And those kind of interpretations, of course, are always worth challenging. Another um, distortion, cognitive distortion that makes indecision prevalent is that our choices can't be changed, that we'll be trapped, that we can't undo them. Of course, most choices can be undone. If we quit a job, and go to another job and we don't like it, we can leave that job and go to another one. If we go back to school and don't like it, we can just go and find another uh, work opportunity. Uh, if we decide to move to some location, we don't like it, we can move back or move at least to a different place. Choices are not destinies. They're just... <coughs> Uh, impermanent transitional states. So um, the fact that we tend to believe that there are clear-cut right or wrong choices, which is generally a delusion, and the fact that we tend to believe that our choices are set in stone and can't be altered, these are two of the very common uh, culprits um, yet this contemporary psychology and the Dharma teach us that whenever there's a frustrating symptom in life, anything from binge eating to uh, avoidance, anxiety attacks, or uh, indecision itself, there's always a hidden protective agenda all of our so-called symptoms or struggles or challenges secretly, when we unpack them, there's reasons that are very defensive for them to play, to stay in place. So what could possibly be the underlying hidden agenda beneath indecision? Well, indecision, of course, allows us to stall. It allows us to delay making decisions uh, so that we won't have to uh, be encumbered by any possible negative consequences of making choices. It spares us the risk of even the most unlikely yet still dreaded outcomes. So postponing can very often, even though it is uncomfortable, when we look beneath it, we can see that sometimes that discomfort is less painful than the anxiety of making certain decisions in life that are very important, um, that feel very weighty. So again, the unconscious uh, allure, as the Buddha called it, he said, whenever there's a uh, unhealthy ta tendency, if you look beneath it, he said there's an allure, there's something actually motivating it. And that's one thing. Indecision allows us to stall. 
It allows us to delay making decisions so that we don't have to face any of the consequences. Of course, generally all it means is that we're postponing it a little and then we're going to make a rush decision down the line. Indecision can be a defense. Even after we make choices, people second-guess themselves. They stay up late at night ruminating over past relationships they've separated from, jobs they've left, places they've moved away from. And very often in the aftermath, they'll paint a rosy tint to the past commitments that actually in the past were very stressful and unpleasant and disappointing, yet in hindsight, somehow the people that were previously uh, uncomfortable, the situations, the workplaces now suddenly seem shiny. And why did I leave um, Kansas and come to New York? So internal debates and deliberations, you know, there over old decisions allow us to not own our choices. It can be a defense against the guilt over making certain choices that were um, not well received by others. It can be a protection from the shame we might feel of making a choice we regret. So, so long as we keep sec second guessing ourselves, it can feel as if the we haven't actually made the choice. And that's a defense in and of itself as well. But all these uh kind of psychological insights aside, there's really one prevalent reason why decisions can be so difficult, why we can struggle very often to decide between uh, two or three possibilities. And that's because decisions, as I said at the, out the outset, are profoundly influenced by gut feelings. This is not only courtesy of the Buddha's Paticca Samapada teaching he gave some 2,500 years ago, but contemporary neuropsychology by Antonio Damasio and others shows that the most profound influence in the decisions we make are our gut feelings. Some people call them somatic markers if you're clinical. If you're not clinical, you'll probably call it intuition. It's a feeling that we have in the body. And the feeling states that occur as we consider one choice or another are the predominant uh, influences that underlie the choices we make. So, for example, um, if a certain possibility leads to contracting the muscles in your stomach, tightening of the skin valence, a kind of staggered, uncomfortable breath, you're not going to choose the choice that elicited those feelings. But if a choice elicits a relaxing of the muscles, the stomach releases, the breath becomes long and comfortable, skin valence goes from a state of excitation to a different state where our uh, attentional focus begins to settle, you'll probably make that choice. And Damasio uh, showed this in some really fascinating clinical studies and that uh, involved uh, people playing cards. And I invite you, if you ever want to look it up, just type into your Google somatic marker hypothesis. It's now the accepted insight as to how human beings make choices. Essentially, it goes like this to really, if we're going to really lay it out in the most uh, decipherable way, Suppose you're in a restaurant you haven't been before and you see a menu and there's different choices on the menu. What you do is as you read each menu item, you will mentally represent the choice. There'll be a quick image or a quick uh, representation of 
the grilled cheese sandwich versus the tempeh Reuben versus the um, smashed avocado versus, I don't know why these dishes are coming to mind. I must be hungry. But all these dishes will, you know, each have their own flash of an image or a flash of an association. And then what happens is really fascinating Subcortical regions that are very fast, including the amygdala, brainstem, uh, right temporal lobe, will compare the images you've generated representing each choice to all of the previous experiences in your life that have positive or negative emotions associated to them. So, for example, you think of a grilled cheese sandwich, and then that evokes very quickly your uh, unconscious sees all the times in life where you were stressed and had a grilled cheese sandwich and the gluten and the whatever, the starch and the carbohydrates turned into dopamine and you started to feel a lot better. And so that will elicit a positive feeling. And then in the restaurant, you'll say, I want the grilled cheese sandwich or the macaroni and cheese because that choice evoked a positive feeling. Sometimes, on the other hand, a choice will evoke a really negative feeling based on some really old experiences. For example, as a kid, I remember being forced to eat beans, and I hated it. I didn't like beans as a kid. And so whenever I'm in a restaurant for many years, I if I saw beans as a... Uh, significant ingredient on uh, a menu item, I wouldn't choose it because it would evoke, based on my early childhood experiences, this sense of being forced to do something that I didn't like, and it would activate negative emotions. The great neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux said that events that have nothing to do with present choices from decades in the past can still evoke a positive or negative um, you know, feeling that will, um, then make a choice for us. If in, um, eighth grade, we go through a breakup and, uh, Steely Dan is playing on the radio and then you move or later on in life, walking into a restaurant and Steely Dan is playing, you might not want to eat there because it'll evoke a negative feeling and those negative feelings will make you want to not choose that possibility. So the fast circuits tally all of our previous memories and experiences and they create feelings that tell us what to do. And these markers are boosted very strongly by these subcortical regions, especially the amygdala and the insula. And then there's a region of the brain called the ventral medial cortex, which scans our feelings and integrates them and makes the choice for us. And fascinatingly enough, people who have brain injuries uh, or tumors that are removed from the ventral medial cortex, they can be very logical people who can be endlessly reasoned and yet will never be able to make a choice because it's not our logic or reasoning that makes the choices. It's the gut feelings that go beneath the logic. Logic and reasoning is a way very often to inhibit, to stall, to wait until more information comes along, to and it can sometimes weigh in when two choices evoke the same negative or positive feelings. So the Buddha said the same, had the same insight some 2,500 years ago, or at least a very similar one. It's called the Paticca Samapati, said that when people contact situations, comfortable or uncomfortable, they will have feelings, positive, neutral, or negative. And these feelings will decide for us what we do. He said, all decisions, all thoughts, everything is rooted in feelings. That's what shapes all of human behavior. And certainly we now know from affect neuroscience and the work of so many from Alan 
shore across the board that um uh oh wait jack pansep and um, ledoux and uh and on and on that that it's the feelings that are evoked beneath uh each image we hold in mind or each possibility that essentially make the choice so choices that we make quickly and easily we do that because there's a clear simple dominant feeling associated with one of the choices very often that's a choice associated with dopamine what the buddha called craving anything that we've associated in the past with uh up regulating our dopamine levels whether it's ice cream or spending money on very often new new clothes or shoes for some or uh for others it could be watching tv or for others it could be just going on uh social media but something evokes and certainly social media does activate a lot of dopamine so anything that's associated with dopamine secretion will very often trigger a positive feeling a feeling of imminent reward anything that has a very clear negative feeling will encourage us not to make the choices so all of this is to say that the one strategy that never really works even though for some reason it has a lot of cultural um weight or it's repeated so often uh people will say when i can't make a choice i'll make a pro and cons list and that's hilarious because nothing could be possibly geared more towards not making decisions than doing pros or cons the only thing that that'll do is add more associations that'll trigger even a more complex array of feelings and will wind up even more incapable of making a choice so no <laughs> if if you are stuck and you can't make a choice don't sit with a piece of paper or draw a line down in the middle and write pro and cons because the moment you start writing those cons for example you're just going to add more and more negative feelings to each choice and you'll be even more in a rut than you were before you even did that exercise um indecision is what occurs when there's no clear distinction between the feelings either both um one activates both choices activate a lot of positive feelings like should i eat the ice cream or should i eat the chocolate bar you know lots of dopamine with either you'll probably have positive feelings you might find it difficult to choose um um or where there's two possible you get two opportunities to travel to two really cool places and you can't decide because both are both positive feelings um that's pretty generally not the most likely reason we have indecision a little more common is when both choices evoke neutral feelings which is we don't feel anything either way so sometimes when we're in a group and people say would you like to go to this restaurant or that restaurant and you've never been to either and you really not aren't hungry anyway so no choice evokes a positive affect so you're you're not going to be able to choose or you're at a restaurant with a cuisine you've never in the past consumed and you look at the names and nothing evokes anything and you just can't decide um these are classic situations where we face indecision but the most common uh form of indecision is when both choices should i stay or should i go should i stay in the crappy job that i'm unhappy with or go find another job should i uh move or stay in a uh a living situation i'm uncomfortable and both choices can evoke negative feelings why is this why is this so uncommon well fear is far too influential in our species even though we live in conditions that are so much safer than our forerunners did in 
uh, our ancestors did in, in tens of thousands of years ago, when they do archaeological uh, burial sites that are unearthed, they find so many of the skulls were cracked open, people died violently. So you would expect in times where there was so much violence, where people were... Um, uh, we're always subject to lo loss of food, um, where uh, we'd have to move at the drop of a hat because the food supply would no longer be available, where disease was prevalent, where other clans were trying to kill us, and so on and so forth. You'd think that the cortisol levels would be much higher, but actually, no. Uh, the cortisol levels in people today are just as high as in the past, and that's because even in the absence of threats and profoundly negative outcomes, our brains can still manufacture fear and anxiety. Our brains have what's called negativity bias. Even the most insignificant, unpleasant past experience can leave a neural imprint in as little as a half a second and negative experiences from the past are amplified to far greater signal strength or emphasis by the amygdala, especially the right amygdala. So in other words, fear is too influential, and it can very quickly associate two choices that are really not either too bad. Both can evoke a sense of threat or unease. We, as a species, are very likely to overemphasize unlikely extremely unlikely negative outcomes. People will hover undecided about uh, traveling out of the fear of flying, even though every day they get in a car and they're far more likely to die in a car than they are in flying, but still they will avoid a choice because it involves the possibility of traveling by plane. Uh, people will avoid going on uh, helpful medications that could be really beneficial because of the most extremely unlikely side effects that they anxiously read about on the internet and decide, well, one out of every 17 million people get a, a cough and a headache from this. I'm not going to take it. But the brain can amplify those associations and trigger negative feelings that can leave us stuck and indecisive. But especially old fears based on early childhood or earlier life events can leave lasting negative imprints. Years later, years earlier, excuse me, uh, a partner betrayal finding your partner has had an affair with someone else can create a lasting aversion to trusting others, leading to intimacy avoidance and leading to great indecision about whether or not to stay in relationships or not. Um, having people, you know, um, tribal response especially negative tribal response, has extremely undue weight in triggering or activating negative feelings in the body. We tend to over, uh, we're overly concerned about how other people will regard choices. And, and, and times where we're facing a, choices where, a choice where we don't know how people will respond, the brain will assume the worst due to negativity bias, due to the fact that we tend to project negative outcomes or catastrophizing more than we project positive outcomes. So in important decisions where there are multiple physiological markers, some conveying des desires, but most conveying antiquated fears or a confusing shifting array of feelings, there are some strategies we can do to help us. When we're facing decisions wherein we have very little experience, but they're important choices, indecision can be a very healthy sign, encouraging us to seek guidance. Indecision, again, is a state very often where the brain is doesn't feel confident and is wanting to prolong or postpone or stall. And 
many studies. Uh, there was a one by Raul Barrios, I think, who showed that indecision can be a very positive in that it can encourage us to get more support from others. And very often we can even turn over the choice to someone who has a far greater degree of experience. Like when buying a car, I would be completely indecisive because I don't know anything about cars. Um, I'm not a guy guy. I don't, I don't care about them. Uh, so if I faced uh, that choice, I would ask somebody uh, who would have any kind of strong opinions about it, probably Kathy and I, and they would make a choice for me because uh that's a situation where it would be an important choice, but I, thankfully, I'm not making that choice. I'm not buying a car. I live in Manhattan. But um, anyway, uh, that's one of the one of the benefits of indecision is that it can encourage us to seek guidance from others. But in choices where there's very little at stake. But we still struggle, for example, what we're going to do on any given evening, which friend we're going to call, whether we should travel somewhere or not, what clothes to purchase if we're, if we have to go for a job interview or go to a wedding or any of those smaller decisions that don't really have lasting ramifications, but still each choice can still evoke either both positive feelings or negative feelings, there are some strategies that will help. One is that individuals with secure attachments who feel the presence in their life of someone that will help them regulate the emotions in the aftermath of making choices generally have been shown to make more confident, faster decisions. When people are feel alone or feel that there is not enough support, then it can be very difficult to make choices. So, of course, connecting with people just for emotional support after we make choice or knowing that we'll have that connection can be very beneficial. But in the absence of that, visualizing secure support in the form of what's called Buddha Nusati, visualizing a figure that will give us unconditional sense of security and care uh, can do, can create a secure enough base to help us make choices. Two, in the case where many, many times we're stuck in a decision, both choices are eliciting very negative affects, it's important to try again, and this time only image, only visualize positive outcomes for both choices. Positive, but when both choices evoke positive outcomes, there's generally one signal that's stronger that makes one choice more uh, exciting. But when both choices elicit fear or aversion or negative feelings, it makes it very, very difficult to ever choose. So stripping out all of the negative concerns, reminding ourselves that we can always change our choices, that nothing is stuck. There are no right or wrong choices. There's just different choices. And just as an exercise, strip out any of the negative possible outcomes and just visualize rewards associated with each, and then see if one choice elicits a slightly more positive feeling done. And then also the Buddha talked about the importance of being able to, before we move, we make choices, remove any prevalent mood that is existent before we face a choice. So for example, if we're tired, if we're hungry, if we're frustrated, if uh, we are feeling lonely, any of those situations can just uh, tint all of the outcomes with, or all the choices with negative feelings. So sometimes it's worth just to eat, sleep, 
do something that restores us to a neutral mood, and then revisit the exercise of visualizing the two possi- or three possibilities, visualizing the outcomes, and then feeling into the body and seeing which choice evokes the, the clearest um, somatic marker. Ah. So actually, I think what would be nice to do now is if we actually put these tools into practice, where we practice making a decision that we've been postponing, and no, no one will come to your house and make you actually follow through, but we're just going to do it as if uh, in our exercise, there's some choice you haven't made, and we're going to use that. And we're going to practice some of the different tools that are available to us to help us make a decision. So I thank you for listening. And what I'd like to encourage is for us to find a really comfortable seated position and to actually not look at their screen. I'll still be... uh, in front of the screen so you can see me. But if you like, I would encourage just uh, turning away from whatever you've been watching uh, me babble on and just find a orientation where there's no temptation to peek or look at your laptop or, or smartphone. And just, if you'd like to lie down, sit back, relax, find any position that feels really comfortable, and then really find the support of the chair or floor or couch or cushion. Whatever you're seated upon, really find it and allow your body to sink fully into it, releasing any tightness or habitual contraction in the thighs and sit bones, just allowing gravity to really plant us. If you're sitting upright, see if you want to just do a little rocking back and forth from side to side and front and back. And then allow your body to come to a standstill so that you have a nice upright, balanced position. If you're leaning back in a chair, a couch, a bed, just allow yourself to make contact with all of the sensations that are supporting your body. And again, try to let your body sink in without any resistance. And then we can do some paired muscle relaxation, very old technique. So squeezing both the toes of both feet and then relaxing, tightening the arches of both feet and then releasing, letting any tension go. Squeezing the muscles and the calves and then releasing. Squeezing the muscles and the thighs as strong as you can and then release and let yourself sink into the chair if you're sitting on one. Squeezing the buttock muscles and then releasing. Pulling in the the, uh, abdominal muscles and then releasing and softening the belly. And just continue this process up the body. Start with the left and right palms, squeezing them into fists and then releasing up the arms.
And finally, um, squeezing all the muscles in the face, making a pinched, ugly face, and then releasing and letting your facial expression form a very comfortable smile, or not a smile, just a neutral expression that feels easy, not not something you have to hold or put any energy into. And hopefully if your body feels a little bit more relaxed, you can reel in your attention and just allow awareness to find a home in the body. For some of us, we'll just habitually go to the place between our eyes and behind our eyes and between our ears. But if you can feel your awareness lowering into your belly or your heart center, Cultivating parasympathetic breathing, long, smooth exhalations. If, on the other hand, you're already very tired, then practice enlivening breathing. Put all the emphasis on the in-breath and make the in-breath both full, complete, sharp, and then just release the exhalation. Allowing awareness of the sounds around you, all of the contact sensations, the shifting states of feelings as you move into meditation, they might be positive. You might note that meditation evokes a sense of ease and comfort. For some, due to struggling in the past to sit still, it might activate some negative feelings of tightness, a sense of, oh no, this is something I'm not very good at, and just... Breathe into any negative feelings, any tightness, as it were, in the stomach, the chest, the throat, the face. Using the exhalation as a way to downshift out of a heightened state into the ease and comfort, a restful state, finding just the right exhalations to help.
and your mind will be lured away by thoughts, memories, plans, fantasies, and all that's okay. Just whenever you note that, feel a sense of accomplishment that you're now developing that kind of awareness that knows what your mind is doing and can decide, can detach from any thought, no matter how alluring or threatening. Not only can meditation provide states of great ease when we continue to practice it over time, but it also can train the mind to let go of thoughts, no matter how sticky they are. This is the time we develop that skill. And the way to develop that skill is not by adding any frustration or disappointment that your mind has wandered, but always just to focus on a positive outcome of simply being able to detach and bring your attention back to the present, to your body, your feelings, your sensations, the sounds of the room. There's nothing to ever be frustrated about in practice. It's all good.
So before we do the decision practice, bring to mind an individual either available to you or not that's associated with care, attention, kindness, someone who's responsive, if it's possible, a reassuring figure associated with comfort, soothing, or at least someone non-judgmental, understanding. And whether or not this person is actually available to us or not, just visualize them looking at us, expression of appreciation, care, attentiveness. Like we can put a hand on our heart center and just evoke a sense of a secure presence, as it were, Now bring to mind a choice, a decision between two or three possibilities. Something that we haven't been able to confidently pinpoint. A decision that we're comfortable with. And now, see if you can visualize, imagine in some way, a positive outcome associated with one choice, the first choice. How could this choice play out in a way that's really favorable. And as we visualize it, just see what feelings are evoked by this. For example, if it's a possibility about uh, taking a trip, visiting someone, just visualize a positive outcome, not any negative parts of what traveling would entail, what money might entail. Just visualize the positive outcome of that and just be aware of the positive affects associated with it. 
And then bring to mind a second choice, a second possibility. And visualize again the most pleasant, realistic possible outcome. Your brain will naturally have in the past excavated possible fears, unlikely worries. But for this exercise, we're just associating the choices with positive outcomes and just noting the feeling tones beneath each. And whenever you want, you can jump back and forth between these two choices, or if there's even a third possibility, visualize that. And then move between the images adding little details or little possibilities that are positive until one choice, one possibility presents a clearer, more decisive valence to it. This is an exercise where we simply pay attention to how the body responds, not any thing else. Just aware of the intuition, as sometimes we refer to it, that's evoked by sometimes the most complex circuitry in the brain, the bottom up vast wealth of experiences from the past that evoke feelings. Whenever you're ready, you can slowly open your eyes and allow yourself to reorient towards either the screen or any other area you want in the room. Mm -hmm. 